Crisavati's poems have appeared in numerous journals, including Connecticut River Review, Cider Press Review, and Comstock Review. He is a two-time nominee for a Pushcart Prize, has been nominated for a Best of the Net Award, and has received awards in the Nazim Hikmet in North Carolina Poetry Society Poetry Contest. His first book of poetry, Talk About God, was published in 2017 by Main Street Rag. His second book, Words for Flying, was published in 2022 by Future Cycle Press. Let's welcome Chris Abate. Welcome to the Prolific Pulse Poetry Podcast. I'm so happy today to welcome Chris Sabate. I've, I've known Chris for a number of years through living poetry workshops, and it's really excited to I'm really excited to welcome Chris and talk about his new book, Words for Flying. And I am lucky because I have his other book, Talk About God, which is I guess we could call this a chat book, Chris. Would you call it a chat book? Yeah, it's got 33 poems. Um, I have never called it a chapbook, but I think you would consider it a chapbook because it's 33 poems. Uh, Words for Flying has 70 poems, so it's definitely a full-length collection. It's like more than a full-length collection. I'm seeing some some similarities with the book covers. You know, both of them are really awesome covers. Um, but this one, Words for Flying, this this book cover is just outstanding. Who is your cover artist for that? Well, uh, I work with, it's published by Future Cycle Press, which is a small press out of Athens, Georgia. And it's run by a woman named Diane Kitzner. And um, she proposes a few covers for me. So we kind of talk about what I'm looking for, whether it's abstract, whether it's something more concrete. And um, there was another cover I was going to go with that was of a person reaching in the sky for an airplane. So you can see the airplane between their between their fingers. And it was kind of like a dark, had more of a darkness to it. It was, um, but I didn't want people to misinterpret that either as war image or maybe as God reaching for the plane. I didn't want people to misinterpret that. So then I was going online and I just found this cover art um, and, uh, I thought this is great. I like the wraparound. It wraps around very nicely to the back. Yes. Too. Love <laughs> that. Mm -hmm. So I really yeah. like that. Yeah. And then she put in the, um, the blurb is by H Paul Hostovsky. He's a poet in Massachusetts and she put the blurb in an ellipse. So, um, it was really a nice touch. And yeah, I'm really happy with the way it came out. I like the cover. The feel of it is good. It, it's kind of a more hefty book. It's about, you know, I think it's like a hundred pages of, you know, paper. And so it's, it's nice. It feels good. So I even um, like the bookmark because it has the, the review on the back. And yeah, I actually and took a I, picture of that and showed it to one of my clients because I said, look at this cool bookmark. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I use Vistaprint. Um, I did that for my last book too. So when you go to do promotion, you go to book fairs or readings, if someone doesn't want to buy the book or someone you know on the fence about buying the book, 
um, they can pick up a bookmark for free. And um, I print about a hundred at a time. But and before with, with Talk About God, I did the same thing. I put, I had two blurbs. I put both blurbs on the back cover of the bookmark. And I would just go to um, coffee bars and places around Raleigh and just leave them in there. I'm not sure if people do that anymore, but I would just, that's something I would, I would do because um, I thought there would, you know, be a way of publicizing um, my book. <laughs> I've done that with, um, there's a coffee shop near me, one of my favorite coffee shops. It's, a, it's an independent coffee shop. And they have, you know, leave one, take one bookshelf in there. So yes. I left my poetry books in there. So I did that at a Dunkin', pick Dunkin', it up. A Dunkin Donuts on Western Boulevard in Raleigh. It's across from my, uh, my veterinarian. And um, I went in there after I went to the, dropped my dog off to the vet and I went in there to get a cup of coffee. And I saw this same thing as a, as a book, <clears throat> bookshelf, a bookcase. And <clears throat> I'm like, hey, I went out to my car. I always keep copies of my books in my car sure. just in case. And so I put a copy of Talk About God. And that was about three, at least three years ago, probably four years ago. So then when Words for Flying came out, I went back to that place intentionally this time because I wanted to leave a book and Talk About God is still there. I mean, it's, it has some coffee stains on it. The pages are warped, but that's, that, that's a good sign. Reading yeah. it, right. So then I left the, I left the copy of, of words are flying there too. So I'll see if, um, hopefully it stays. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully people read it too. Hopefully it gets, exactly. it gets marked up and the pages get earmarked and coffee stains. I'll take, I'll take all of it. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, tell us a little bit about you. I just kind of jumped into your book, but tell us about you, where you're from, what, why you write poetry, whatever you want to tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, I am from central Connecticut, a town called Weathersfield. I think it's the third oldest town in Connecticut, um, settled in 1620, so it has like a very long history. Um, but it's right, it's just south of Hartford. So um, when people ask where I'm from, I'll say Hartford, Connecticut. And um, I uh, grew up in a suburb, um, went to Catholic school education um, from kindergarten through high school. So I was in the Catholic school system for a long time. And um, I went to Gordon College, which is uh, north of Boston. And it's a liberal arts school, four years, very small, thousand student school. Um, and I studied English. Couldn't imagine studying anything else other than English. And the funny thing is I really wasn't a reader growing up. I was really just into sports and being outside. So there was something about literature that really grabbed me that um, made me want to study it. I couldn't imagine studying anything else. It seemed like that when I, saw my friends studying math and science. It just seemed very difficult. And like, almost like you were working and I did not want that. I figured I'll be working enough when I get out of college. Let me enjoy this and just really. And once I started learning and studying English, it just blew me away. So many different things. Every class I was just so entranced by what I was learning and reading. Because I, like I said, I really didn't have that. I really hadn't read poetry. I didn't write poetry, but there was something about it that um, almost like something subconscious that I was connecting with that I wasn't aware of. 
Um, so when I graduated college, um, I thought, well, as an English major, I guess you need to go to graduate school and teach. Um, so I, I did that. I went to Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, Connecticut. And I um, got my degree in, in English, my master's degree. And um, I was going to be certified, but I just realized that teaching was not for me at that time. I was just too young. Um, classroom management was just a whole other aspect of teaching that I was not prepared for. So um, I felt I would have been a good teacher, but it just was not for me at that time. So I, uh, I didn't pursue that, but I did finish my master's in English. And then once I did that, um, I needed to get a job because I, I needed to pay for my tuition while I was going to school. And I started working in the field of clinical trials, clinical drug trials uh, at a, um, a small company in Hartford, Connecticut. It was the only one of its kind in the whole area. Um, and they would service pharmaceutical companies. So we would, run, we would manage their clinical trials for these pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I was a data manager for a while. I managed the small group there. And then over time, my career just took me to Massachusetts where I worked for a few different companies there as a data manager. Then I became a programmer. So uh, that's my current job now is I uh, do programming for clinical drug trials. So I'll design databases. So we'll have a protocol that we'll read and then we determine what needs to be captured, what data we need to capture, which is a lot. And we'll work with statistics, um, we'll work with clinical people to determine um, what we need to capture in this study, in this database. And then we'll program logic checks and reports. So I, I'm a SAS programmer. I've been using SAS for uh, about 20 years. So um, that's what I've really been doing. That's my day-to-day. -day. Um, poetry is really just a side thing for me. It's a passion, but it's something I do at night. Of course, I'm always thinking about poetry and English is something I always carry with me. Uh, I'm glad I can, I'm glad I can utilize that now in terms of poetry um, because um, it was never something, I kind of fell on it. I never really, I kind of tripped over it. Never really was something I knew I was gonna pursue. But once I started reading poetry and classic literature, um, and non-classic literature, just, you know, regular modern poetry, I just realized like, oh, I need to do this too. Um, I wanna be a poet and uh, nothing's, gonna, nothing's gonna get in my way. Of course, I need to pay the bills. Poetry's not gonna pay the bills. My job is, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm a, I have a passion for that too. It, it really, the, the programming side of things is kind of fulfills my technical part of my brain and then the poetry, you know, kind of um, fulfills that other part of my brain. Well, we're really fortunate to have you as a poet because, um, well, for one thing, you're probably keeping Kimberly Clark in business by the Kleenex sales. Um, it's really hard to read your poems without feeling some degree of sadness or tearing up, but I find in a connected kind of way. I found that in reading your poems that what you talk about is so relatable to what we've all gone through in our lives with going through adolescence, going through even like 
walking the dog and that relationship that you have with your canine companions. Um, you know, it you you want to go from one part of life to a whole different part of life and just bring it all together beautifully in your book. Um, I just finished your book yesterday and there were some poems I, I remember reading, I think I've probably in journals that you shared um, in some of the publications because you have several credits in here for um, publications. Um, but I'm really impressed with, um, I was already impressed with talk about God and now words for flying just took it to a whole nother level. Um, wow. Thank you. Um, would you yeah, like I, to I share? Really, I, I really wanted to get, um, I think that the, the kind of the standard is when you're putting a manuscript together, I don't know if this is true for you, but I try to get about half the poems published in journals that are gonna go into the manuscript. Then once I have that, and I have at least 50 poems total, and then maybe maybe half of them, maybe a little bit less that have been published in journals or had some acknowledgement, uh, then I know I can go ahead with the manuscript and send it out to, you know, send it out to presses to, to um, you know, for acceptance or rejection, which happens <laughs> most of the time. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the marketing part of it, just the marketing of the individual poems, um, and having like someone like you in critique groups to review my poems first. So I, I write the draft, I write about 10 drafts. Then I feel like once it's okay, I'll send it off to critique groups, um, to other people I, I know, just emailing people. So then I get their feedback. I like it sit for a while so that I'm not getting too lost in the poem so I can come back at it and, and objectively and, and reread it and, and edit it. Then once I have a group of poems, I will then market them. So I send them to journals. It's easy these days to do that. In the old days, we had to send, you know, you had to send a self-addressed envelope and the paper copies and, you know, the payment maybe. So nowadays it's just, you know, if you have a submittable account, some of the journals will ask you for two or $3, which is fine. Cause you know, you're supporting the journal, which is good. Um, and, you know, most likely you'll be rejected or declined as I'd like to say, but, um, you know, every so often you get the acceptance and maybe nine out of 10, maybe one out of 10 submissions will be accepted for me, maybe one out of 15. Um, that's a pretty good hit rate. Yeah, it really is. It's a whole other part of the, of, of the, of, of writing though, is um, marketing, is, is publishing the individual poems and then, you know, getting the manuscript together and then trying to publish that and get that accepted, which is a whole other mountain. And then marketing the book, which is what we're doing now. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot to it. It's fun though. I, I, um, I have a binder. I keep a binder. I did this for Talk About God and I've done this. I, I put together a binder recently for Words for Flying, which is about, you know, like a two and a half inch binder. And I just fill it with just tabs of promotional ideas, who to ask for places to send my book for reviews, um, people to send my book to, like you. I want to make sure I send a copy to you. People ask for podcasts like you. Um, reviews, people to ask for that. Um, my book launch, my, my um, contract with Future Cycle Press is in there. So I just keep a notebook. I'm really, I like to be very organized about it. So I like to be very methodical in how I'm making sure I hit each check off each box in my marketing. 
and it's fun. I really enjoy that. Um, a, a reading, quick source, ask for readings. Yeah, getting reviews can be really challenging. You know, I would definitely be writing a review, um, which you. brings me to ask you if I wanted to purchase this book, I'm so fortunate you sent me a copy, where would I go to do so? You can go to Future Cycle Press's um, website or Amazon. Um, there's a lot of different distributors that Future Cycle publishes through. Um, and Amazon is, yep, there's my book there. And if you click on the book, I think it takes you to Goodreads. Yes. <clears throat> and then there's um, an option to go to, um, to purchase it through. If you click on the title, I think if you click on the cover image, you'll go to the, um, you can go to the Amazon, there it is. So just below that, Lisa, yeah, there's okay. Amazon link. Amazon. And there's a bunch of other distributors too that they will publish through. But Amazon is, is the, um, the company that prints the book. And it's, there's, it's available on Kindle as well. So the Kindle edition is great. Um, I mean, I like to have the hard copy if I'm a reader, but if you um, have Kindle Unlimited, just you can get it for download, which I have the download of it as well, um, or in paperback. And if you do purchase it, yeah, I, I, I've made a list of people too to leave review, to ask for reviews on either Goodreads or Amazon, even if they, you know, it's, um uh, just a, a neutral review like i read the book and it's okay that's fine too <laughs> any review i've I, on, on goodreads or amazon is, is good because it it means people have picked up your book they were interested intrigued by it and they you know read it and so that's support just as much as a positive review would be support I would like to know if you would read us a poem from your book. Sure. Your um, choice. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I'll read the title poem. Um, and the title of the book, I mean, it's, it's titled after this poem, but um, I noticed that in the, some of the poems that deal with um, suspension, flying, but also about being suspended. And I think that's poetry is a great metaphor for that because there's a vulnerability about poetry, I think. And there's also this sense of being suspended and looking down and maybe seeing things from a different perspective and questioning things, which I do a lot in my poetry. Not as much about answers, but more about questioning things and considering things. Uh, so this poem is called Words for Flying. His prayer at takeoff, the man in the seat next to me, the practiced crossing of himself before kissing his thumbnail, reminds me of my childhood mantra, Lord willing, at any mention of the future, a divine safety net, a worn path of petition. The first time I flew as a child, I gripped an armrest with one hand and rosary beads with the other. My brother walked freely up and down the aisle as if we didn't need God to fly. Before touchdown, the man crosses himself again. The wing flaps rise as we break, reveal braided arteries of hydraulics, 
our bodies lurch forward, hover for a moment in our chairs, incidental to gravity and lift, thrust and drag. The man glances at me, relieved. Neither of us has words for flying, and a turbine needs no intercession. More likely, we are the plane's prayer, suspended between body and spirit, ignorance and understanding. How else to explain our tearing through the stratosphere at 600 miles per hour, intentions climbing, soaring, peering over the edges of our lives, then gliding back to earth, barely feeling a thing. You know, um, one of the things that I noticed, uh, kind of a theme that goes through your book, not with every poem, but uh, I see frequently is reference to prayer and the beads and some type of uh, religiosity um, going through there. Where's that coming from? Yeah, um, I grew up in a, um, a pretty um, um, devout Catholic household and even evangelical too at one point. Um, about the early 80s, there was an evangelical kind of movement that was going through the Catholic church. Uh, where Catholics were actually becoming born again. So uh, it was really interesting dynamic, a lot going on uh, religiously. So I felt like, and especially in my first book, Talk About God, I, it, it really works through a lot of that religious upbringing and trying to understand what it all meant, what was really going on underneath the surface. Um, in this book, I do some of the same. It's not focused as much on that, but a lot of the poems um, do refer to that. So. For me, it was about really um, looking under the covers of that, trying to understand what that language was really about, seeing it more from a metaphorical um, or its metaphors rather than how it seemed to be taken so literally, um, what it was, you know, connoting. Um, and I think that was really what poetry for me was so good for, because it was really a perfect way for me to reconcile those feelings and the conflicting, the conflicting feelings I had about religion growing up and understanding the truth of it, which was great. It really just liberated me and kind of helped me to break, break out of those chains because sometimes I think we feel like um, the final obstacle to understanding God and religious truth and spiritual truth is the name God and these, these names we give things and the books that we read and the, you know, the scripture. So I think it's important to go beyond that and realize these are just things that point us to the truth um, and what's going on. And it's not, you don't wanna get stuck on the metaphor. So you're always under, trying to understand it as metaphor and to understand that the, really what's going on isn't what's inside you, not what's out here. Um, so that's what's important. So really the poetry has been it's not therapeutic poetry, um, it, but is poetry that has been therapeutic for me to write and hopefully for people to read. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm still working through it. I could write a whole other book about it, about my growing up. Um, but, you know, I want to make sure I'm being fair to it too. Uh, not critical because um, 
it really was deep. There was a lot going on and people, the adults I saw around me, they, they needed this, you know, this was a lifeline for them. Um, so I think it's important to be fair um, and not to be just cynical, but to be fair and to understand what they were searching for and what they needed and how that helped help them so much. I saw it in so many adults and it was great. It was a community of like love and support, uh, this religious community and the churches I grew up in, um, it's just so supportive. It was just, the, it was great. So, um, but I needed, under, I needed to understand it. And then when I started writing poetry, it was, it's just one of the first things that comes to my mind is all of this religious language I grew up with that I need to work, work through. My mother was Catholic and my father was Methodist, so we, we were kind of left to our own devices. And um, so when I'm reading through this, I wonder, you know, with my mother, it makes me kind of want to write some poetry about that, um, uh, what she left behind by um, marrying someone outside of her faith, because, you know, as you know, being brought up Catholic, what that means. And so... Um, you know, so I know things I could not, can't ask her because she's not here, but um, it brings up some stuff. And so I think that's something I got to take a look at a little bit closer. So, yeah, your poems really give people food for thought. They really do. Yeah, you like that's to what read I like to do. I'm it's sorry. more about, uh, for me, it's really about knowing the right question to ask. And not necessarily, there is some resolution for me writing the poem, but I wanna make sure that I'm leaving it open enough for the reader to consider something or to, or to, or to listen to me considering something. Um, I think that's important um, to do, to leave you with. So I'm always thinking about the reader. I want to make sure this is not just, this is not just for me, it's about me, but I want it to resonate with my readers. Certainly easy to see why you've had a couple of pushcart nominations. Absolutely. Your, the quality of your work is just excellent. It's actually when I was reading through this, I'm like, I can think of other prizes as well that you qualify for. Now this book was um, also, wasn't this a, a part of a contest? Um, this book, I haven't submitted it to contests yet. So uh, because it was published in March of this year, 2022, I'm gonna be submitting it to contests now once they open up for the 2022 contests. Um, Future Cycle Press actually has a, a contest of their book, the books that they publish each year. They only publish 12 books a year. Um, my, my manuscript was accepted back in 2020. So you need to wait your turn in queue for about a year before your book comes out. And what they do is they, they do not pay royalties. So they want you to go out you know, and, and market the book in person, sell the book um, in person, which is great, which is, I, I do that all the time as much as I can with at readings and things like that. But they will take the royalties that they get online from online sales and they will give uh, those royalties to the person who wins the contest, who's chosen as the best book of the year for that year that they published. So um, I'll, I don't even need to, I don't need to submit my book to that because it's already going to be 
considered for that. But yeah, there are other book contests that I will definitely um, submit to. Well, best to you on that. I really think that you have a contender. So thank you. you. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to share another poem with us? Sure. Um, I write a lot about when I was just preparing for this to talk, talking with you, I was thinking about like, what, how would you describe your poetry? How would you describe your book? It's really difficult to do. I challenge anyone who writes poetry or who does something artistic to capture it, to be able to describe it. It's not easy. So I thought one thing I like to do is, I think throughout the book is to um, talk about influences. So there are all these external influences we have, but then there's the internal. So there's, I kind of like try to, my poetry I think is a way of like reconciling those external influences with who we are and how they can change us and how we influence, how we push back a little bit and how those things kind of push back on us. So um, the whole book I think is like this kind of interplay and intersection between these outer and inner influences. Um, so this one is called uh, Neighborhood Men. Neighborhood men talk in driveways over the hoods of SUVs. They talk as if they need a piece of steel between them. They talk in cliches, spit consonants, curse like car engines starting. They stop their lawnmowers to talk, fold themselves over to pull a stray weed. They talk about the thing they just bought, how much they saved. They like to compare their stuff to your stuff, explain why you need the stuff they have. Neighborhood men talk like tools in the garage, potential energy. They talk about what they will do someday when they have the time. They talk about tomorrow or next week. They say we should to each other, as in going out for a beer or playing golf some Saturday. But until then, they will hang like shovels in perfect rows. They will be reliable and stiff. They will wake up, get dressed and drive to work. And at the end of the day, they will pull into the driveway, go inside, turn on the news, and ponder the hard lines of houses and yards and sidewalks. The ones the neighborhood seemed to draw around them when they weren't paying attention. They will think of ways to bend the lines into a shape they can describe, the shape of diligence, of winches and chainsaws and trees they used to climb. One that resembles the question their wives are always asking. The shape of contentment, a thought that vanishes somewhere between the alarm clock and the shower. A shape they could fall in love with if only it had a name. it you know I can picture the man's men standing out there and, and all of this activity and what's going on underneath 
It's beautiful. Yeah, I live in a neighborhood where the houses are pretty close together. We have very small lots, so um, we all kind of have our own little lines that we live inside of, and um, and we're all very close. You know, we live all very just so close together. But it's an interesting dynamic. You get to know your neighbors when you're so close. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Um, it's a good neighborhood, and it's kind of a tribute to the neighborhood men, which I'm one. <laughs> they can write the same poem about me. <laughs> yeah. the, the little town that I came from, it's just a population, and now it maybe it's up to 1,400 people. Um, they, they, everybody congregated down at the hardware store. And farmers would, there's a farm town, the farmers would ride their tractors into town and go to the hardware store. And then sometimes a little bit later in the day, you see the tractors parked outside the local tavern. And sometimes because they couldn't drive their car, they had to drive a tractor. But yeah, I could see some of these same people, some of the characters in a way, you know, and talking about these different kinds of things. So absolutely. <laughs> well, Chris, it's been a delight to have you here today. I would like you to take us out with one more poem. Sure. Um, I needed to write some poems about my dog. Um, he's a papillon named Lewis, 12 pounds, little guy, but tons of energy. So, um, I wrote, I had written four poems about him. I could write a lot more uh, just because recently I felt this sort of connection with him um, that I can't describe, but I can only put into poems. So I had four poems and I thought, um, well, I'll just put one in the manuscript. But I, would, and reading, you know, I read a lot of poetry. I read a lot more poetry than I write. And I see how people and poets will, um, show we'll have a series of poems about one particular topic and they'll um, intersperse them throughout their poetry book so i thought why not do that with these four poems i'll include all of them and Glad i call them did. canine i call them canine studies uh, numbers one through number four and each of them has a, a, has a subtitle so this one is um canine study number three two bulbs it could take my lifetime to understand him, how there is no distinction between who he is and what he does. Meanwhile, I am returning to the self which Jung spoke of. For all I know, we are vials of energy, two bulbs, as each evening he stops me outside to sit on the steps. And I think how there are more stars than grains of sand on earth. 10 times my grandparents spun dust into light. Tonight, I fathom one star, contemplate this dog. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on here today. Okay, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Come back again soon. Would you like to be on our podcast? Send an email to prolificpulse at gmail.com and we'll get back to you soon. Thank you. Have a good day.